everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I am a member of the podcasting committee and one of the co-executive producers of the podcast. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. And today we're going to be doing something that we haven't done before. We're going to have a little EP primer with our guest, Dr. Soham Dasgupta. Soham, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Ah, perfect. Well, thank you, Dr. Zanatos, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I'm Soham Dasgupta. I'm one of the pediatric and adult congenital electrophysiologists at Norton Children's Hospital and at the University of Louisville here in Kentucky. I've been an attending here for about two and a half years. And yeah, it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast and I look forward to a good discussion. All right. Thank you so much for being willing to be a part of this. So I thought that we could kind of have this discussion framed around a case. And this is a case that I feel like we see fairly commonly in the ICU and would be good to sort of talk through from an EPEEPS perspective. You have a four-month-old infant. He had a history of tetralogy of flow. He presented to the CICU following a valve sparing tet repair. He initially came back to the ICU on milrinone at 0.5 and epinephrine at 0.03. His OR course was relatively uneventful. His initial vital signs, he had a heart rate of 150. He had a systolic blood pressure of 88 and a CVP of 9. He had A and V pacing wires. The OR said there were absolutely no rhythm issues. And for the first few hours, the patient was doing pretty well in the ICU. He had gotten a fluid bolus for a CVP of 6 with an associated systolic blood pressure of about 70, but his lactic acid was clearing after the bolus. And over Overall, he seemed to be doing pretty well. Of course, I was on call, and so at around 8 o'clock that night, we got called to the bedside for hypotension. And when I came in and saw him, his extremities were cool. I noticed that his temperature was like 37.5 Celsius. His heart rate had trended up to 188. And his systolic blood pressure was 68, his CVP was 10, and the nurse had noted a change in the CVP waveform. Coming to the bedside as the intensivist, the first thing I wanted to do was an EKG. Looking at that EKG, what are the things that that are going to be important for me to take note of? Oh, absolutely. So, of course... Um pretty classic, but also a pretty concerning case, right? And <clears throat> there are a lot of lot of things in this uh, presentation that you mentioned that are quite concerning and, and a change uh, compared to how the patient presented from the OR, presented to the cardiac ICU to begin with. And I completely agree with doing an EKG. So, you know, the heart rate has suddenly increased from 150s and to the close to the 190s. And while that could be sinus tachycardia from from whatever reason, whether it's post-op, whether it's a little bit of dehydration, although the CDP doesn't make sense and we'll go, go a little further into that. Uh, I think the step one is to diagnose the rhythm and the best way to do that is a 12-lead EKG. I mean, on the EKG, I think the biggest thing we're looking for is whether it's too fast, appropriate or too slow. And we already know that this is probably going to be too fast for the patient and, and his age. Then we want to see whether it's narrow or it's wide complex. And that kind of clues it clues us in into what it could be. If it's narrow complex, well, it clearly rules out ventricular tachycardia to begin with. But if it's wide complex, it does not 
rule out a supraventricular tachycardia, although it makes it potentially less likely. So I think those are the initial things that I always look for in a 12-lead EKG. And then as an electrophysiologist, there is a P in EP. So we're always looking for P waves on an EKG. And I think even more than the QRS, I think our eyes automatically try to scan for and look for the P waves. And once we find the P waves, or sometimes when we don't find the P waves, now it's a clue as to what the diagnosis could be. In addition, uh, I guess a big shout out to the surgeons for putting on temporary epicardial atrial and ventricular pacing wires. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Significantly aids in the diagnosis. So atrial electrocardiograms, in addition to a standard 12 lead electrocardiogram, is extremely helpful in the diagnosis and even treatment of postoperative arrhythmias. And that is because immediately postoperatively, sometimes the P waves are low amplitude. And if the rhythm is fast or the heart rate is fast, like in this case, the P waves may actually be buried in the QRS or even in the T waves. So discerning or trying to figure out whether P waves are on a standard 12 lead EKG can become quite challenging. What the atrial electrogram does is it provides direct atrial myocardial recording. So it amplifies what's happening in the atrium. And then again, it makes us electrophysiologists happy because we can clearly tell what's happening with the P wave. So I think that's the way I would approach it is get a 12 lead EKG and then also get an atrial electrogram at the same time since we have pacing wires. That is what what we did. We decided to go ahead and send that EKG on to our EP colleagues and <laughs> see what they thought about it. Right. One of the things that we were still a little puzzled about is exactly where were we seeing the P waves in relation to the QRS? I think so. If we take a step back, so this is a four month old who had tetralogy of fellow repair and was doing well for a few hours. And then suddenly there was a rapid increase in the heart rate. And I think another clue, and we'll talk about this again, is the change in the CVP waveform. The question is whether this could be a common postoperative tachycardia or tachyrhythmia known as junctional ectopic tachycardia. Now, while that is definitely on the differential, the differential includes a broad, uh, I guess, a broad, a broader differential. And I'm guessing on the EKG, you saw a narrow QRS, correct? Yes. Okay. So that brings us to whether this, I mean, some sort of supraventricular tachycardia and the differentials are atrial tachycardia, which is usually an automatic or a triggered focus, whether it's some sort of a reentrant tachycardia, like atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia or AV nodal reentrant tachycardia. So those are the garden variety reentrant tachycardias. And then you have the junctional ectopic tachycardia that we just uh, talked about. Uh, usually with atrial tachycardias and AVRTs, which is the atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia, P waves are usually not terribly hard to discern. You will usually see P waves on a 12 lead electrocardiogram that helps with discerning or trying to figure out what the mechanism is. But for AVNRT, which is AV nodal reentrant tachycardia and junctional ectopic tachycardia, the, there is usually simultaneous activation of the ventricle and the atria. So you have the P waves that are buried right in the QRS or they happen simultaneously. So it's really hard to figure out where the P waves are. And based on what you told me that, you know, we were having a hard time figuring out where the P waves are, my mind would immediately go to, is this jet? or junctional tachycardia, which makes sense with the story, or is this, you know, AVNRT, which is also not super uncommon for a baby. Less uncommon, less common with the story, but we cannot absolutely exclude it. But there are a few other mechanisms uh, or other tests that we can do to differentiate between the two. So what is one thing that, that you might advise us to do at the bedside to try to help make that, that differentiation? Right. No, absolutely. 
So I think one of the things that you mentioned right off the bat was the change in the CVP waveform. Could you, I guess, describe to me what the nurse saw in, in, in a little more detail? What change exactly was noted? Yes, the nurse noted that she was seeing much larger deflections of the A wave than she had previously been seeing in the CVP waveform. So I think that makes you suspicious for something known as Canon A waves. So the CVP tracing, again, is a venous tracing of the venous pressure. And again, depends on where you're actually obtaining that tracing from, where the line is in the heart and where that tracing is being obtained. So when we have something known as JET, this is an automatic tachycardia that is occurring from the junction, which is the junction between the atria and the ventricle known as the AV node, and of course, distal to that, the bundle of His. So it's happening right in the middle or the junction of the heart. So when that tachycardia has taken over the rhythm, now the sinus node is no longer the driving rhythm, it's the junction. So the ventricle is getting activated, but the atria may or may not be activated at the same time. But the ventricle is definitely getting activated based on how many times this junction is firing. So there is what we call AV or VA dissociation. So as a result, what happens is when the ventricle is squeezing, there is no synchrony between the atrium and the ventricle. So as a result, the mitral valve opening and closure is also desynchronous because there is not you lose the atrial kick. And as a result, you can get mitral regurgitation and that increase transiently increases your atrial pressure or ACVP uh, tracing on the CVP tracing. And that leads to what we call canon waves, which are just larger deflections on the CVP tracing. Just And that's a reflection of loss of AV synchrony. So all of this is making me think more and more that this is likely JET, again, where the story makes sense and maybe not AV and RT, but that's just one test out of a couple that we can do to actually confirm that. Yeah. And do you ever find it helpful to, even if you don't think that the rhythm is a supraventricular tachycardia, to give some adenosine to slow the heart rate to help you get a better sense of, of what we're dealing with? Absolutely. I, I don't think adenosine is ever the wrong answer other than for, I think, three cases. Uh, one is if it's clearly sinus tachycardia, we should not be giving adenosine. That's usually <laughs> the wrong answer. Number two, in heart transplant patients, one has to be really careful in giving adenosine. Usually we recommend starting with one tenth the dose because their degree of AB or adenosine effect uh, lasts much, much longer and you're going to get prolonged asystole. And the third case is if someone is in pre-excited atrial fibrillation, meaning they have WPW, now they're in AFib and rapidly conducting across the accessory pathway. Other than that, and of course, if someone has severe asthma and at risk for bronchospasm, other than that, I don't think there is any any downside to giving adenosine. And in fact, adenosine in this case is going to be extremely helpful if the mechanism is unclear, especially if you're thinking JET versus AV node reentrant tachycardia. So how would adenosine administration help us determine whether this was AV node reentrant tachycardia versus JET? What would we see if we gave adenosine in each of those scenarios? So AVNRT is, as we said, a reentrant form of tachycardia, meaning it's AV nodal dependent. So if you give adenosine, it should terminate, at least transiently, the tachycardia. It should terminate the tachycardia. That would be the goal. Junctional tachycardia, on the other hand, is an automatic focus where it's a focus in the junction that has a mind of its own. And so what adenosine would do is it would temporarily suppress it, but then you would see it ramp back up to the original heart rate. 
So it's a good diagnostic test where you think it's jet, you suspect it's jet, everything points towards jet and you give adenosine and you see temporary suppression and then it goes back up to 150, 160, 170, 180 and then 190. That's pretty much diagnostic of jet. So in this case, we didn't really feel like we needed to do that. We went ahead and were able to kind of make the diagnosis of junctional ectopic tachycardia because of the history, the Canon A waves, the atrial electrogram all pointed to that. And so initially, you know, we started with the general treatment that one does for jet. So the patient had like a mildly elevated temperature. We wanted to make sure we got the temperature down. We wanted to chill the baby out, give him some sedation. We increased our Presidex drip a little bit. And then we still were not able to break the heart rate. And now the lactate starts going up a little bit. And so now we're thinking, okay, what's next? How are we going to kind of control this, this rhythm? I would like to take a moment to thank the sponsor for this episode of the podcast, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Established in 1995, the CICU at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is one of the largest critical care units in the country dedicated to the care of children with heart conditions. Our specially trained physicians treat a high volume of rare and complex congenital heart diseases each year, offering a unique level of expertise in this field. The Cardiac Center continues to expand our capacity through premier programs such as the Jill and Mark Fishman Center for Lymphatic Disorders and the Pediatric Heart Valve Center. The good thing about JET is it's usually transient and self-limited. It usually burns out. The bad thing about JET is that it's an arrhythmia that can get patients into real trouble and including needing ECMO support because patients can get really, really sick and there is no way to control or you're just unable to control the rate and also the hemodynamics. But initially, as you mentioned, we always try to, you know, make sure there is no fever and control the temperature. And if you look at the old studies, especially the studies by Dr. Walsh back in the day, looking at junctional ectopic tachycardia, the temperature that was recommended to cool to was 34 to 35 degrees centigrade. Uh, so not 37, not 36, but usually 34 to 35. That's when they, that's where they found the best effect in term, terms of slowing the rate. We talked about, you know, sedation and Presidex uh, or dexmedetomidine is a fantastic drug that actually helps or is an, is an adjunct to our therapy for JET. And what, what that does is, of course, it has effects on the alpha, alpha one receptors. We know that, which helps in slowing down the heart rate and also eventually will lower the mean arterial pressure. But it also has direct effects. And people have shown this in studies on the SA node and the AV node. So SA node, we know we get sinus bradycardia from dexmedetomidine, but also the AV node. And this is a tachycardia that's originating from the junction, the AV node. So it also helps slow down uh, the junctional rate uh, to an extent. Now, dex by itself won't really slow it down significantly, but it's an adjunct to what else we can do. So yes. cooling sedation, and then, of course, maintaining normal electrolytes. So potassium above four, magnesium above two things like that. Those are kind of ancillary things that we have in our arsenal. But as you mentioned, this patient clearly now is showing signs that the patient's hemodynamics are not liking this rhythm, right? We're getting to a point where we have to do something else. And the way I think about that at that time is uh, there are two ways one can treat it. One is what we call a rate control, where you slow down the chat rate. Maybe a, even if you have junctional rhythm at a heart rate of 140, the hemodynamics will be better tolerated than a heart rate of 190. So that's rate control. 
The other part is known as a rhythm control, where you actually convert jet to sinus rhythm. And so there are a couple of ways you can do that. And the advantage with rate control is if we are able to slow down the junctional rhythm, again, we have atrial pacing wires, you can overdrive atrial pace, say 10 points faster than the junctional rhythm at 150, for example, and then restore that AV synchrony that we had alluded to in the past. It's really hard or nearly impossible, not beneficial to atrially pace a patient at 200 beats per minute. So before we atrial pace, we have to somehow slow down the junctional rate to allow us to do that. And that's when we're talking about antiarrhythmic medications. It's amazing to me always at the bedside, the difference that that can make, even if the patient still isn't an underlying jet, once you're able to pace above it and restore AV synchrony, everything usually starts to, to get a lot better. In order to slow the heart rate down, what are our other than, you know, now we've cooled, we've calmed the baby, we've made the electrolytes all all in the box, and we're still struggling. We still have a heart rate in the 180s, the nares are dropping, the lactate is rising, the systolic blood pressure is low. The last thing you want to do is add more epinephrine to this fire. So so what are our options from from a drug standpoint? And how do you guys help us decide? which one we should choose? No, great question. I think, I mean, there has been so many studies on drugs for junctional ectopic tachycardia. I mean, this is one of the rhythms that has been studied so well, and we have so much experience with. And there are really five, uh, potentially five drugs that we can use. So the age-old one that has been used for many, many, many years is amiodarone. So that's a class three antiarrhythmic on on the Vaughan Williams classification. We have esmolol, which is a beta blocker, and we can talk a little bit about the challenges with using esmolol for slowing jet. The third drug is procainamide, which is a class one antiarrhythmic. It's, it's a sodium channel blocker, and it's a really good drug for junctional tachycardia. The two newer players in the market are IV sotolol, and the group from Texas has actually published a lot on using IV sotolol, which is also a class three antiarrhythmic for the treatment of junctional tachycardia. And I think the the newest one is oral ivabridine. So, and it's an enteral drug, and I want to emphasize that. So, there is no IV formulation of ivabridine. And ivabridine is a fun. It's it's funny that it's named this way, but it's a funny channel inhibitor, which is a sodium channel that kind of affects the pacemaker cells of the sinus node, and also has effects on the AV node. And there have been new studies which have shown, uh, in fact, a big study that came out from India which showed that ivabridine is non-inferior to amiodarone for the treatment of junctional ectopic tachycardia. So enteral ivabridine is non-inferior to amiodarone, which is a huge claim to make, right? Amiodarone has been there, IV amiodarone has been there for ages, but its uh, studies have shown that, in fact, we've had good experience with it as well, that it shows that it is, it is a good drug for the controlling junctional ectopic tachycardia. The choice of drug, I think, really depends a little bit on, I guess, two or three things. One is how fast do you need the jet to slow? How bad is, how sick is the patient? Do you have a little bit of time or do you need a rapid, rapid conversion? Two, I think, is availability and physician experience. Some some places don't have ivabridine. Some places don't have procainamide or the ability to check levels, which we'll talk about. So availability and also just physician experience. Some EPs have just trained with amiodarone and some EPs have just trained with procainamide. So what does one feel comfortable with? And then I think number three, also the patient. And what I mean by that is, what is the kidney function? What is the liver function? And I think that also determines what drug we use. So 
I guess we can talk a little bit about each one of them and kind of when we would choose one, if that's okay. Yeah, that would be perfect. Absolutely. So starting off with Esmolol. So Esmolol, as we said, beta blocker, really good drug for quick on, quick off. The problem with Esmolol is sometimes, even if you're trying to wean epinephrine, because the blood pressure is so low in junctional tachycardia, the patient's on a lot of epinephrine. And it's kind of the fire of the frying pan. You can't really take epi off. And so Esmolol, it's counterintuitive to add a beta blocker when the patient's on a lot of epinephrine. And people have slowly started moving away from Esmolol because there are other better antiarrhythmics, but that's kind of the issue, one of the issues with Esmolol. Also, it has a negative inotropic effect on the myocardium. So patients in JET, post-op, anyways at risk for low cardiac output, and then you put a negative inotropic agent on, uh, doesn't always give you the best results. So that's Esmolol in a nutshell. Procainamide, class one antiarrhythmic, really, really good drug. There was a Langendorf study that was done by Dr. DeWitt and published in Jack, I think three or four years ago, and it compared the inotropic effects of multiple antiarrhythmics. And procainamide was the only drug that had no negative inotropy on the cardiac musculature. So you can imagine this is gold. In a patient who's just had cardiac surgery, doesn't affect the contractility, that's just fantastic. And there have been studies that have compared PROC with, again, the gold standard amiodarone and has found that PROC has equal efficacy and potentially less side effects than amiodarone. The challenge with PROC, two of them, one is we have seen and studies have shown that if the patient is not cooled to that 34-35 range that we talked about, PROC is usually not effective. So PROC has to be done in adjunct or in conjunction with cooling. The other thing is you have to check PROC levels. So procainamide is metabolized in the liver to a to a metabolite called NAPA or N-acetylprocainamide, and then that metabolite, and then it is cleared by the kidney. So if you have liver dysfunction, it is not going to get metabolized, so your PROC levels are going to go up. If you have kidney dysfunction, then it's going to get metabolized to NAPA, but then it's not going to get cleared, and then both PROC and NAPA will go up. And so NAPA actually is a class three antiarrhythmic, and that is the one that actually causes QTC prolongation. So have we done it? Yes, but I would be careful in using it with someone with renal dysfunction. And also we have to have the ability or the lab has to have the ability to check procainamide and NAPA levels. So that's PROC. Amiodarone has been there forever. Fantastic drug. We call it the dirty drug because it kind of treats everything. And it's the anti-arrhythmic for the intensivist. You don't know correct. what it is. Just give them some amiodarone. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in the PEDS world, we've tried to use other antiarrhythmics on the adult side. Amiodarone is still the most commonly used drug by far. But it's a class three antiarrhythmic and it has negative inotropic effects similar to Esmolol, like we talked about. But it is a really good drug for JET both for rate control and also will usually convert it to sinus rhythm eventually. The problem is have to be careful in using it in patients with liver dysfunction. Amio we know can cause liver toxicity, prolonged use. Really good drug if you have liver if you have renal dysfunction because amio is not renally cleared. It takes a while for amio to build up in the system. So and this is something that I was taught and trained is if I have to bolus amiodarone, I'm gonna bolus it really, really slowly. And I'm talking about 45 to 60 minutes. If you look at all the dosing recommendations, it says over 10 minutes. That's when one gets into trouble with significant hypotension with amiodarone. However, bolusing it slowly, I have found it to have the same effect, but again, not have that degree of hypotension. And if there is hypotension, the treatment is actually calcium 
calcium infusion for amiodarone-induced hypotension. So it's a great drug, but there are side effects that one has to be careful about. And then real quick, IV sotalol and nivabridine. Sotalol, pre prelim studies have great results. However, renally cleared, so cannot use it or be careful in using with renal dysfunction. Number two, it is a drug that prolongs the QT quite significantly. And although amio does it too, the risk of torsades is much, much, much higher with sotalol than with amiodarone. So before giving sotalol, we get EKGs. We get EKGs every 15 minutes into the infusion. And then we also make sure electrolytes are top-notch and normal before we give sotalol. And then finally, real quick, uh, without 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 saying too much, is ivabridine, which is an enteral drug like we talked about. And we've actually had great success with ivabridine, I mean, as an adjunct. And even by itself, it's an enteral drug, and we always worry about absorption, but you know, patients do absorb it and it, it works. And usually twice a day dosing significantly slows the junctional rate down. So that study that I referenced where they compared ivabridine to amio, it said it was non-inferior. However, ivabridine did take a little longer for rate and rhythm control compared to amiodarone. So again, comes back to the question, how fast do you need someone to convert? So in that, in the patient that you described, Dr. Xanatos, I would probably use an IV drug such as procainamide probably, and then add avabridine as an adjunct rather than using avabridine as monotherapy. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that I've been practicing long enough to kind of have witnessed this transition, this evolution from amiodarone to procainamide. And I can say at the bedside, I much prefer procainamide to amiodarone because like you said, you know, when you're doing those boluses of amiodarone, you can have some pretty significant hemodynamic instability. One other thing that I wanted to see if you had thoughts about is transitioning drugs. So I've been in situations where we've given amiodarone we haven't had a really good response, and then we decide to give procainamide. What should we be looking out for and precautions if we do something like that? Right. So that's a great question. And this is one of the reasons why I don't prefer using amio right off to begin with if I have the option. If I don't have the option, it's fine. And, and the reason I say that is once you start amiodarone, you are almost really committed to using amiodarone. And it's because it is a it's a lipid-soluble drug, so it's lipophilic. So it gets absorbed into the fat and it stays, the half-life and clearance is really, really long. So it lingers in your system for a long time. So now if amio is not working and I have to switch to, say, procainamide, I'm actually having additive effects of two potentially QT-prolonging drugs and their side effects together. Because amios, even though I've stopped it for, say, 12 hours, six hours, it's not out of the system. So once I go to amiodarone, I am really committed to using amiodarone and maybe adding another drug if I'm in real trouble or we're not able to, I guess, not able to control the rate. But switching from amio to another drug is really challenging. On the other hand, if I start with Proc, for example, and it's not working, I can stop probe for a couple of hours or four hours and then switch to amiodarone. That's not a big problem. So it's easier to switch from another drug to amio than to switch from amio to another drug. That being said, you know, there are circumstances which we, where we've done it, but we just have to be careful. And when you're getting those procainamide and NAPA levels, what is the interval by which you want to be checking those? So typically, I check one level usually four to six hours after the initial bolus and after the infusion is started. And if that level and if the renal function and the hepatic function is pretty stable, I will probably check a couple of levels every 12 hours. 
And if the levels are nice and stable, I'll just go to daily levels till, till we are on procainamide. However, if the renal function is questionable or borderline, and I notice on the first couple of levels that my levels are rising, then I potentially would try to keep a close eye on levels. Like I would probably do every Q12 hours for a few more days or even, even I guess, shorter intervals till I'm confident that I won't get toxic. And the reason to check levels is not so much for efficacy, because the efficacy you will know based on what the rhythm's doing. Is the proc working or not? The main reason that I look at it is for toxicity. And I start worrying when the proc level, just the proc level in itself starts getting above 12 and my NAPA level starts climbing above six. Again, we've, we do it, but that's when you have to be careful. You don't want a proc level that's 15, 20 and a NAPA level that's 10. That's when you start getting into real trouble. Yeah. And I think that that ha- is is the game changer and really you have to be able to measure the levels in order to use the drug you know it can't be a send out because that's gonna take too long and your patient will be toxic before you before you get it back correct no absolutely and you know this is this is one drug that you absolutely need to have timely levels and because it changes management you can act, you can actively change the drip or consider bolusing or things like that based on what your levels are doing. And of yeah. course, the daily EKGs on all of these patients. In fact, any patient who's been treated with antiarrhythmics for JET should be getting daily EKGs. Yes. Well, I'm happy to report that in this case, the patient got his procainamide and we were able to control his rate. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, we did atrially pace him for a little while. And like you said, in a couple of days, the the jet went away and it was self-limited and got better, got extubated and had a successful post-op course. Right. No, that's the, again, the good thing about JET is the studies have shown that usually 48 to 72 hours is when it usually will burn out. So you just have to support the patient through that by no, whatever means necessary, whether it's pacing, antiarrhythmics, et cetera. And, and I'm glad to hear that this patient did well. I mean, with our current era of JET management, every single patient should do well. We have so many drugs at our arsenal. And again, there are times when we need to sedate and paralyze. And if the patient's not intubated, reintubate and even institute ECMO, knowing that this is short term, that this rhythm will burn out, except for the very rare case, which is the zebra, that it will burn out and the patient will usually do well. And this is not a long term thing. The other interesting thing I will say is, you know, this this patient at Tetralogy of Fallot, which in the olden days was the most classic lesion that you would associate JET with. I mean, JET is common after some surgeries rather than others. When when I was at, I guess, Boston before this, we, we looked at contemporary data for JET and we looked at 6,000 patients who had junctional tachycardia or 6,000 cardiac surgeries and what were some of the risk factors for having JET in those patients. And actually, TET was or tetralogy of fallot was not one of the cardiac surgeries associated with JET or that highly associated with JET, which was very surprising to me because even as a fellow, this was the one question, like, what is the surgeon, the surgery that's associated with JET? And the answer was tetralogy of fallot. Right. You know, VSDs, AV canals. So surgeries near the AV node. I mean, tetralogy is also one of them. But also heterotaxies. All of these patients had a higher incidence of JET. And it had a significant correlation with aortic cross-clamp time. So the longer aortic cross-clamp time had 
a higher incidence of jet and if the patient was less than one year of age so infants who were heter for example the classic patient in that study would be infant heterotaxy also has an ev canal and has a long year to cross time that's like high high risk for post-op jet okay okay great that it's interesting to change that thinking away from sort of what we all think is the classic lesion. (laughs) So, Hum, I really appreciate this. I think it was very educational. I should mention that we will be putting some uh, visual examples of atrial electrograms and JET, some EKGs onto the members-only section of the PCICS website that you can log on and see kind of visually some of the, the things we've been talking about in this podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? I would just say always encourage your cardiac surgeons to put on atrial and ventricular pacing wires. <laughs> They're life-saving, as you noticed and as you saw in this case. And then if your hospital or institution is thinking about procainamide, I, I would I would uh, vouch for it. It's a great drug. And then having a real conversation with the hospital regarding obtaining levels, because it's a drug that's been shown to be really effective and also safe. I think those are the two things that I would probably leave you leave everyone with. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for giving us a little EP primer for The Intensivist. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes is used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License.